Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If the only measure of wealth that you're worried about is money, then you're very, very poor. He's an entrepreneur and the chief curator of the International African American Museum. He is one of the most unique perspectives on history, art, and the world today. You just heard James Bartlett describe one of the most influential moments of his life. That story right now, I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. James, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Definitely. I'm glad to, glad to have you. I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation today um, and, and allowing not only myself, but, but everyone else to learn from you, to gain perspective of how you see the world, how you see your life and how you see your work. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. Um, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, well, let's, let's start with, you know, currently, I know you're up to a lot and we'll, we'll cover a number of things in this conversation, but currently you are the chief curator for the International African American Museum that is slated to open in 2022 in Charleston, South Carolina. <clears throat> As I understand it, the museum will explore the journey of cultures um, and the history of the African American people from everything from slavery to civil rights and current day. From, from your perspective, what is this museum creating? What's your role in it? And what does that mean to African-American history and also the history of the United States? Yeah, no, that's right. So, so really the impetus for creating the, the museum was the fact that uh, over 40% of enslaved Africans that arrived in uh, the United States came through Charleston, came through South Carolina and, and Charleston in particular. Um, and so, you know, kind of the original concept for this institution was to, to honor and, and recognize that 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 legacy and history um and, and to to recognize the, the the trauma and and the and to uh document and and put out in the open you know what what happened i, I think it's it's not a, a commonly known fact uh, you know i'm not from south carolina i'm not from charleston i, I did not know that that over 40 percent of uh, enslaved africans that came to this country uh, came through the port the ports of Charleston, and and because so many you know so many of our ancestors did it, almost almost all African Americans you know again who have ancestry going back to to slavery have ancestors who came you know, uh, who came through um, Charleston in South Carolina, and so for that reason alone you know it, it obviously plays a central role in you know the history of uh, of African Americans. Um, but beyond that, beyond that kind of initial uh, seed of uh, of a reason to create the institution, what what has really evolved is is an institution that that connects, that connects histories, legacies, and helps people to better understand the the interconnectivity between uh, between South Carolina and its history and the broader Atlantic world. So uh, to the Caribbean. Uh, uh, to South America, uh, as well as to West Africa. So 
when people kind of first hear about this institution, a lot of times, you know, because they, they understand the, the history of, of, of slavery in, in the area, you know, they may think that it's a, a you know, quote unquote slavery museum, but it, it's, it's really not. It's really, um, uh, again, based on the, the foundation of recognizing and honoring uh, that, but it is using it as an opportunity to kind of connect the dots both historically and in a contemporary context to uh, how, how this impacted the world and how uh, leading up to today, uh, you know, there, there still are these intense connections, whether it is cultural, whether it is uh, uh, political, uh, economic, intense connections between various points in the world. And so we really tried to uh, dig deeply into that unique history, uh, dig deeply into the, the unique local history, such as Gullah Geechee culture, uh, as well as, as I mentioned, kind of zoom out and, and look at more of these macro uh, connections uh, throughout, you know, intercontinental connections. Yeah. And, and well, I think connection is a key word. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, growing up here in the States and, and, and you and I talked once before and I told you I've traveled to Africa numerous times. I think I've been 11, maybe 11 times to numerous different countries and, and had lots of great cultural experiences and safaris and everything else that kind of goes with, with those experiences. But, you know, one of, one of the most powerful ones I ever had was when I was in Tanzania and actually on the, the island of Zanzibar, just off the coast. And I know that's not typically where people think of slave trade originating from because it's more on the Eastern it's well, it is on the Eastern side of Africa, but there is a port there where, where there was quite a bit of slavery originated from in Africa um, and, and they have museums there, obviously, that you can tour. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced in person a place where such great trauma initiated. And you could feel it. You could feel it in the walls. You could feel it in the ground. You could feel it in, in, in some of the, um, you know, I would say murals and, and other, you know, artifacts and things that they had, you know, on display. And it was painful to... to to, to look at and read and feel, but it was so important to feel that connection, even, even, even the slightest bit of it, knowing that obviously, and I'm glad I wasn't alive then to experience those things in person, but, um, but just to even see that it was that to feel the truth of something that happened was so powerful. No, that's absolutely right. And I, I've, I've had the, uh, the opportunity to, uh, visit Zanzibar as well. It's incredible, incredible places. I'm, uh, I'm sure you know. Um, and to your point, it, it it's such a large story. I mean, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, we we have a tendency to, you know, re reduce history down to you know its simplest form, but that never really captures what it really was and what really happened. And and as you mentioned, Zanzibar is on. Um, the east coast of, of Africa and, and had much more connections with a India, Asia, uh, the, the Islamic world and and the slave trade that went through that region. Um, yeah, was was more directed easterly and and um, and and, you know, most of the slave trade on the west coast, west and central Africa went to um, the United States, to Brazil, to Caribbean, etc. And uh, and actually, one of the reasons, because the, you know, the 
the International African American Museum obviously has a, a broad and grand purview. There's a, a massive story to be told. And quite frankly, I, I, I try to I try to bring this up internally a, a lot that it, it's it's frankly a story that that is impossible to tell in in a finite space and time in a finite you know uh, building uh, with a finite number of of galleries. We can only tell so many of the stories, right? And so one of the things that we're trying to do and trying to balance is acknowledging the breadth of the stories, but then honing in on particular, still large, but particular stories that are uh, uniquely connected to South Carolina. So for example, we, we don't, we acknowledge and, and um, hopefully uh, uh, address that there is much more to the story, i.e. so much history on, you know, in, in East Africa, in North Africa, Egypt, uh, South Africa, et cetera. But we focus on West and Central Africa because that is where uh, most of you know, most of people who arrived in uh, in Charleston came from, and, and and even more granularly, we focus quite a bit on Sierra Leone because uh, Bunce Island, uh, a similar uh, kind of launching point for uh, for the slave trade. Bunce Island, in particular, in in modern day Sierra Leone, is where uh, is where the majority of of uh, people came from. So. You know, it's this balancing act of, uh, again, telling, you know, some of the, the macro story, but then being able to zoom in and kind of give those more nuanced and more human stories uh, that, that hopefully uh, encourage people to, to look deeper in other areas as well. You, you know, we talked once about your path to, to what you do today was sort of atypical, right? So for those that are in your sphere of influence, um, you know, in other words, you know, your path to entrepreneur or curator and these things that you're doing with these museums is atypical. How, I mean, how do you define that being atypical from what the normal path would be? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't have, I don't have an art history degree. Um, I, you know, as you, as you mentioned, my degrees are in English literature, publishing and, and an MBA. Um, but my, my work experience has been in the arts. Um, and so, I, I definitely uh, think of it as as an advantage, as, as a tool to um, you know be able to see things from multiple different perspectives. You know, I, I definitely consider myself a, an arts you know outsider from uh, from from that perspective, in that that you know I, I didn't take the typical uh, educational or or even work experience path to to get where I am, um, and and because of that, I'm, I'm able to uh, look at things through a slightly different lens and, and hopefully come up with, with different solutions that, um, you know, that reach people in, in a different way. So, uh, and, and also that, that connect more, uh, connect more people and connect more uh, artistic and creative ideas. You know, you talked about how, how at Mokata, you know, we, we, we used visual arts, you know, film, performing arts, uh, and and you know, the more the more tools that you have at your disposal, I think the more effective you can be. Is there, you know, is there a core principle or a mantra that guides you? So, you know, for example, for me, you know, I have this whole 
thing that I'm, I've always sort of been stuck on. And maybe it was ingrained to me from my dad who, you know, like I said, he was a history teacher. He's also a football coach. And it's this fundamentals first approach to everything. It's, you know, breaking down all the moving parts. It's like a coach would and blocking or tackling because that, you know, it's the constant focus on it so that it makes you stronger. It makes the team stronger. Is there something for you that's this, this thing that, that guides you? I would say the, the, the closest that I have to that is, is, uh, focus on consistency you know I think and I, I believe strongly that you know it's the things that we do on a daily basis are you know are us right and so uh, you know just just focusing on making a, a practice out of uh, out of life we're making a practice out of anything that we do and you know, as as you connected to you know your father being a, a football coach you know maybe maybe this does come from kind of my sports background but you know when I say practice uh, you know it, it's about it's about the time you put in it's about um, it's about the time when you're not making progress as much as it is you know the times that you are making progress and so um, you know just showing up on a daily basis and, um, you know, kind of continuing to, to do the work, uh, you, you know, as a, as entrepreneur as well. I mean, it, it's, it's the same in, in a lot of different fields, you know, whether it's art, whether it's entrepreneurship, um, you know, you, you're not, you're not always going to see the, the fruits of your labor, uh, you know, the, the day after you start toiling well, it's, away. It's, it's definitely, you know, it's not immediate. I mean, and, and yeah. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that in Outliers. Yeah. He talked about this 10,000 hour rule. But, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people always miss about that rule is, you know, I can go out and hit golf balls for 10,000 hours, but I'm still not going to be as good as a lot of other people if it's not right. purely focused on exactly what I'm doing consistently over and over and over. If I'm out like, you know, kicking around with, with my buddies hitting the balls for 10,000 hours, I'm not going to improve to the, to the effect of, to, to the extent that I could, if it was purely focused, probably like a Tiger Woods did, you know, for, for all those years. So, and, and still is, um, but you know, I think it's, I think it's, I think consistency is key fundamentals, you know, doing these, these, these things, these things that are key over and over and over again, and being focused on them is, is critical. Um, sounds like we agree there. I mean, you know, on another topic I like to discuss is transparency. It's so it's, it seems to be such a polarizing topic for so many people, but it's so simple and, and it gets, I think too complex and people want to make it complex, but I'd appreciate your perspective. And, and in particular in the art world, you know, I'm aware that there's a tremendous amount of, you know, let's just say lack of transparency or perhaps, you know, provenance when it, when it comes to art, um, you know, what can we learn from you and what should we know with your depth of experience in this particular topic? Yeah. And I mean, that was definitely something that, you know, kind of seeing the art world, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I mean, that was one of the, the immediate things that, that has jumped out at me is, um, you know, I guess kind of like an old school <laughs> lack of transparency. I mean, it really is, you know, when you think about the art market, so kind of to step away from, uh, like the museum and nonprofit uh, side of the art world for a second, although there are <laughs> uh, tons of overlaps and lots of connection. But but looking at the um, the art market for profit side, I mean, it, it it is like the definition of <laughs> you know kind of 
old school um, back room <laughs> dealing. Uh, you don't know, you know, <laughs> like it, 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 it's a little scary, frankly. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in, and, and because of that, it, the, the, it increases the uh, lack of access to art. Um, and is, and is the real quick is the is is the you know backroom dealing is this is this in terms of who gets these pieces or is it or is it about where they originate from or or is it you know if they're authentic or not I mean or is it all the above? It's most definitely all of the above. <laughs> so so there's this this uh, this giant feedback loop in the the art uh, market of you know it, it's kind of a, a pure you know, supply and demand kind of scenario. When, when you think about the art market, uh, you know, how much is a, a piece of art worth? It's worth how much someone's willing to, to pay for it. And because these are, for the most part, unique items, there, you know, there, there isn't a one-to-one comparison. And, and because of this, the value is created by scarcity, like quite literally. And so the powers that be in the art world, whether they're the the major collectors, the the major galleries, uh, they they increase value by uh, reducing access. Like that's just that's how it is. And and you you know to play at a certain level, you basically you have to buy your your access. And so access to to it. If I want to buy a let's say a Kerry James Marshall. Uh, uh, artwork, you know, it, it might cost whatever, say $10 million. It's easy, right? So it could easily cost $10 million, but it's not as simple as me just having $10 million. I say just, <laughs> it's not as simple as having $10 million and going to purchase it because it, $10 million honestly is, is probably the, the, the easiest part of it. It's the access to be able to purchase that because the, you know, the, uh, the gallery or, 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 or the collector that wants to kind of increase the value of all of the other works is, uh, is going to, you know, yeah. And, and, and choose who's allowed to purchase that work for, for that price, if that makes sense. So that's just one example. I mean, there, you know, yeah. you gave other examples of, you know, where provenance and all these that we yeah we could go on <laughs> for hours on this topic but you know but there but it, you know and <clears throat> there's a there's a severe lack of transparency there i mean is is that something that you know is it does it come from you know players that are just unwilling to to be transparent or there's a there's some sort of advantage for them to hold you know keep others yeah. out yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, de- there's a definite advantage, uh, you know, as I mentioned, like, that's kind of how value has been created in this world. And and because it's a relatively small market, when you think about other, you know, whatever, like, say, like the real estate market, which is, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, you know, the art market, you know, is a mere 60 some odd billion dollars a year. And so when it comes to, you know, uh, world economics, you know, the, the just Congress and other other entities aren't as worried about it. Let's say more and more they've been talking about it because it's one of the it's one of the 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 last like really unregulated markets. You know, you can kind of do just you know just about whatever you want in the art market, and because of that, it it 
it unfortunately has attracted a lot of, uh, you know, nefarious uh, individuals and, and money laundering and things like that. Just, just think about, just think about a quick scenario. Like how, what, what other way could you, uh, as a, you know, whatever, as, as a, <laughs> someone who needs to launder some money, let's say, could you take $20 million, purchase an object that is only whatever, three feet by three feet, and then store it in, you know, some offshore facility, and it's going to maintain that $20 million value for as long as you want it to, it'll probably go up in value, uh, and then sell it without, you know, without, without needing to disclose who you are, without, you know, needing to jump through hoops that you would have to, to, you know, acquire most other assets. So because of, because of lack of transparency, um, uh, and, and it being, uh, an, an outlet for, um, you know, frankly, illegal activities, it started to, you know, attract more and more attention. And I think things are going to change in the, um, in the future, in the not too distant future. And I'm actually very interested in new technologies like blockchain and things like that, that, that will continue to increase transparency in all markets, but, uh, have a lot of, of uses in our yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, um, you know, one of the other podcasts um, is a good friend of mine. His name is Chimodu, who's a, a photographer, documentarian, um, and really just really interesting human being. You know, he was talking about that with his art, how he can use blockchain or really, really any of the artwork can use blockchain to be able to authenticate a piece of art yeah. um, and let that hold true throughout the, you know, the entire history of that of that piece. Yeah. Um, that was kind of unique. So that, that's a good listen as well. Um, now you, you've curated and, and overseen the exhibition and, and designed for over 30 different shows. You know, how much does the world's current climate and politics, diversity, education impact the way that you have approached your work and educating others um, and told history, both in the past and, and let's say going forward? Yeah. Yeah. In, in just the, I'd say in the last five to 10 years, um, there has started to be a conversational shift in, in the way institutions think about uh, their roles, right? And so in the past museums, for example, were largely thought of as repositories for things, for objects, for art, um, and, and stewards of, of those objects to conserve them, to ensure that you know, future generations uh, had access to this human culture and human history, but not a lot of thought was put into how to make those objects accessible to the people in society and to the community. It's like the thought was around the object itself, and and let's let's preserve it, let's you know, let's let's house it, if you will. And now we're 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 finally starting to transition. Uh, to how how can a museum as or arts organization or others uh, as an institution make itself more accessible and and benefit the communities that it exists in and I I feel um, it, it's been it's been a great pleasure of mine to to kind of be in some of the early stages of this because I I think that this really came from the grassroots organizations that uh, that understood why these institutions existed, 
uh, as opposed to just following like the legacy history of, you know, what a, a museum had been for the past, you know, several hundred years. And, and I'm talking about organizations like Mokata, which Mokata was founded in like literally the opposite way that, you know, 99% of museum institutions were, were founded. It was founded by a 24 year old black woman from Flatbush, Brooklyn, who had no, you know, <laughs> didn't found it with, with any uh, trust or any, you know, kind of large uh, financial contribution. She literally just founded it as an idea. She, she, she just recognized that her community needed an art space that reflected and engaged with them, right? And so the very first space was a, 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 the fourth floor of a brownstone that was owned by a church in her neighborhood. She got uh, the church to you know, let her use the space and she started putting up exhibitions part-time. She had a, a separate full-time job, just started putting up exhibitions. And over the course of like the next eight or 10 years, you know, started fundraising, getting a little money to move into a permanent space. And, and so really the concept sprung from, uh, you know, a community member uh, uh, seeing a, a need within the community. And, and so now that, so multiple other organizations have like that have taken root. And I think now finally the larger institutions are starting to, learn from that and and kind of reverse engineer and become a popular phrase now museum without walls uh and and trying to break down the the, the barriers between the the art or objects and the community well, I, and i love the story about mokata because you know it, it it's always impressive to me and and so inspiring when someone can just be resourceful whether they have the knowledge base or not just go for it and then create something beautiful for others to experience and learn from. James, you were born, we covered this a little bit, but you were born and educated, obviously, here in the United States, and you have tremendous international experience. You know, what's your, what's your perspective on the current state of the world and where do you see it going? Like, what, like what should we know? I mean, outside of the arts world, just in general, our yeah. culture. Yeah, and I, I, I had the opportunity to, so my MBA act, it actually is at uh, IESC in, in Barcelona, Spain, and, and it was an amazing program because it, it was international in, in every aspect. So it's a small program. There are about 45 uh, students, but we were from about 25 different countries, and we studied in six or so different countries. And so... That was it was a almost two year program, uh, amazing amazing experience uh, where I got to see a lot a lot of the world and 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 see it with people from from all over the world, and it, it just further hammered home to me the 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 notion both the notion and the dichotomy that we are living in a globalized world. However, the majority of people are not global citizens yet. And, and you see that played out in politics in countries all over the world, right? There's this, there's this battle and friction between, you know, people who see themselves as global citizens and, and see, you know, companies as global entities, et cetera, and individuals who 
see themselves as you know nationalists, frankly, you know, as 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 a, a, a citizen, literally and figuratively, of a particular country that is you know kind of at at at, at battle, if you will, with the other countries, you know, and 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 you know it obviously plays out in in many different ways in in politics and in multiple countries, but I think that that just overall almost everywhere you see this this conflict uh and and i think that it's going to take quite a while for it to um you know for for it to evolve and for uh you know there there for us to even kind of understand this moment um because it's 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 exacerbated by the the underlying roots of the conflict largely lying in inequalities and, and lying in, you know, a, a rising gap between the haves and have nots. Right. right. So there's all these layers. <laughs> well, and, and there are tons of layers. And, you know, whenever I'm, you know, at a dinner with, you know, friends or acquaintances or a group of people and these topics come up, you know, I listen a lot. I'll, I'll talk a lot too. But the one thing I always say is, you know, it's, it's just, it's not, it would, it would be beautiful if it was easy to solve these things. And it's, it's not quite just simple. Um, although it'd be great if it, if it, if it were, that being said, the question I always pose to everyone is, you know, it's not a matter if something's right or wrong. It's a matter of, does it work well or not? Cause when you, you know, when people get on opposite sides and they want to argue right and wrong, then there's this constant force of a, like it's called a wall that's between yeah. these people. And one person's not willing to go over and understand the other person's perspective. But when you say, look, I don't want to say whether you're right or wrong. I just want to ask the question, does this work well or not? And if there's mass conflict going on, the argument could be, well, it's not working well. So the, the constant friction is not solving it. So let's choose a different path. Let's have a different discussion and open things up. I, I think over this last year, as, as unfortunate as so many things were that occurred, you know, particularly here in the States. And by the way, there's horrendous travesty of the same nature happening in places like Nigeria and, and you know, other parts of the planet, if, if people go explore it. Um, I think for the first time here in this country, and I'd be curious if you agree or not, it actually opened up the conversation in a much um, with much more depth and also broader vision than maybe it ever had been before. Absolutely. I agree. One, 100%. I mean, I think that, um, you know, no, no matter, no matter what side, um, you know, someone may stand politically. I think that the, the last four years without a doubt have, um, have illuminated, uh, more of the realities than, uh, than I think most people were aware of. Um, I'll give uh, just a personal example. So I was actually, so in 2016, during the election, I was actually in China with this uh, MBA cohort. I was in Shanghai. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, people from 25 different countries and it was the day of the American election. So, so I was one of three Americans in the program. And so everybody was asking me, what do you think is gonna happen? Who do you think is gonna win? And, and all of this. and and. It, in my mind, because of, frankly, the bubble that I exist in, I didn't really think that there was any chance in the, I mean, obviously I knew that Trump was going to get a lot of votes, but I did not think that it, there was 
really any possibility that he could have won. And that day just showed how much of a bubble I was living in because I was clearly 1000% wrong. And, and I think that, you know, the next four years, um, you know, we've seen uh, new conversations uh, that, that I think uh, weren't had or weren't acknowledged before. I think we've seen new language and terminology, again, regardless of, of uh, how, how, you know, what one feels is, is correct or incorrect, the terminology that we're at least willing to talk about has changed. So for example, a term like white supremacy, I think, you know, if you go back five plus years, you really only heard the term white supremacy talked about when you're talking about like the Ku Klux Klan or like, you know, overt racism. But we've started to talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, ideas like white privilege and ideas like uh, structural racism and ideas like, you know, structural white supremacy in that the, the, the ways that our country and others have been constructed creates a system that, uh, you know, places more value on whiteness than, than others. And so just being able to have these conversations, um, I think is, uh, is a step in the right direction and is, is something that um, is a place that we weren't in just a few years ago. Well, I think that's so important because, you know, when you, when you look at a term, whether it's that one or, or any other term that, you know, is, you know, creates any divisiveness across any, you know, sort of any race of people, mm-hmm. you know, the, if you only look at the term, then you, you really miss the, the, the depth of what that conversation could be about. And that's where, yeah you know, I've always had a problem with saying, well, it's right or wrong to say that. It's like, well, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying like, does it work well or not? And, and if, and if, and some people obviously see that term, look, there's some people that see that term in one light and there's another group that would see mm-hmm. it in a totally different light. And, you know, I sit here as, as a, as a white male um, and I'm not really af- offended by it in any way. I hear the term when it's applied generally and say, well, from my perspective, that's, a, a, you know, laying judgment on, upon, upon a large group of people, but it also has made me even realize more than ever in my own life, even though I grew up in a household that wasn't racist and was, you know, we were educated and, and inclusive with people. And I mean, look, if you moved to New York City from the South and you spend more than a year there, then you're probably okay with lots of different types of people and cultures and, and races and backgrounds and everything that comes along with it. And if you're not, you leave quickly because that's what New York does. Right. And that's the beautiful thing about the city, but you know, it even, and as, and as open as I've always been to, to those conversations and, and, and topics and, and felt positive towards supporting people that weren't maybe as fortunate in lots of different areas. It even opened my eyes more to say, well, there's a bigger, bigger, bigger conversation here. It's not um, quite so simple as well. Oh, you know, I'm not racist or, or whatever, just because you have, yeah you know, friends of other colors doesn't mean that you don't have something in you that doesn't or hasn't taken taken enough initiative to help support um, a group of people that haven't been given the same opportunities. No, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, like you said, when, when we get caught up in the term itself, as opposed to what we actually mean when we say the term, you, we can easily talk past one another. Um, yeah, you know, we actually have a conversation about, okay, what, what, what do I mean when I say white supremacy? Because it might not 
we might not have the same definition for it. And so if we can talk about, okay, wait, what do we mean? And as you said, does it work? Is this working? Is this system working? Is this creating, you know, kind of equitable outcomes for individuals? Then we can, you know, start to find common ground and, and, and not, um, you know, see one another as, as the enemy and, and, or not, hopefully not even seeing one another as, um, you know, uh, 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 even casting judgment, you know, kind of on a personal level, you know, because I think, frankly, where we are, I mean, you asked the question earlier about, um, you know, kind of th this point in history and this point in time. And I think one of the major realizations that, that we're starting to grasp is, I, I think, in previous generations, the, um, the overt problem problems around race were overt racism, were people who were racist, who held racist ideologies. However, today, I think that the, 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 the main problems are the systems that came from that overt racism that still exist and impact the world today. And so it is very possible and, and quite frankly, you know, uh, probable for an individual to not be racist, not to not have racist, you know, ideologies, but to still operate within a system and a structure that is racist. Right? You yeah, know? <laughs> listen, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, that's, and I think that's where if, if, you know, my, you know, I believe if we can, if we can all get our, our heads around that concept, we can solve a lot. Sure. Um, couple, couple, couple last things, you know, one of the, you know, you as being, you know, this diverse individual being an entrepreneur, being a little bit of an artist, being a, a bit of an educator, all these different things. You know, I think one of the hardest things for all entrepreneurs, all artists, it really anyone that aspires to do anything of substance is this fear of failing. And, you know, like personally for me, when we started my agency leveling 18 years ago, that was the biggest barrier. It was, well, well, what if we fail? What if we fail? And, and my business partner and I, we talked about that for a year. We finally, one night at a, at a dumpy bar on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, maybe a couple of beers too deep, decided to ask that, that same question to ourselves again. And, and in that moment, for whatever reason, it hit us. We said, well, if we fail, then we go back and start over with something else. So what? And so then we started, it just, it got rid of all that, that worry and that, and that, that barrier of fear. Um, you know, is, has there been fear in your life and, and was that a motivating factor? Or was it something you learned from? If you did, you know, what would you share that would help others? Yeah, I, I definitely have. Um, I think for me, it, it didn't manifest in like conscious thoughts of, oh, what if I fail? But I think it, it manifested in, um, just this constant need to be driving forward, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, kind of yeah. like the thought that like, if I'm, if I'm standing still, I'm falling backwards, you know, kind of thing. And for, for me, for, for several years, uh, it took me a while to recognize this for several years, it manifested in an unhealthy way of, uh, associating associating more with my future than with my present. That's the best way I could say it. Like you, you might've felt this a bit as an entrepreneur as well, but I always 
I always uh, identified more with where I was going or what I was working towards than where I was. And in some ways, you know, it was, it was good because I accomplished a lot uh, through that mentality, but uh, it it was not good and not sustainable um, just for for enjoying life, right? Well, I fully, <laughs> I, listen, I, 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 I fully understand what you're saying because any... I've suffered from that numerous times and, and still periodically it happens as I've, as I've gotten older and matured and gotten more say comfortable with who Steve Parker is, it's been less of an issue, but, but there are moments where I, I get too caught up in, in the future and what could be that not is and who knows kind of stuff. And, and you get over overworked with it. And, and then you, you do lose the joy of what's happening now, if that's the case. And that's the same with, Look, that's the same with running a business or, or maybe if you're an artist creating something, but it's also with even being a parent or, you know, a friend to someone. It's the same thing. So, um, well, look, throughout our lives, we all get great advice. Um, I mean, what's, a, what's, a, what's the best piece of advice or one of the best pieces of advice or knowledge that you've been given by someone and, and who shared it with you? Yeah, there was one time that I, w- I will never forget. So I was, I was in Ghana um with with some friends we were we were working on a a, a film project and we uh the, the film project had uh some choreographed parts in it some dancers and and we were at the university of ghana uh and meeting with some of the uh the dance and arts teachers at the university and i remember uh, i i I wish I could remember his name, but uh, it, it was a, a professor at the university who we were sitting with and just like, and he was an elder and, and he was just uh, imparting so much wisdom to us. But I, I'll never forget when he was talking about, um, about people coming to, to Ghana and to, to Africa uh, in general looking for things, looking for, you know, for wealth or, or, or extracting things, natural resources, et cetera. And he made the comment that he said, the people who, who come here, you know, uh, uh, looking for those things, they're so poor, all that they have is money. <laughs> and that was just like, so that, that, that was just so, I, I was young at the time and, and, uh, I had just never heard someone refer to uh, to to wealth in that way, in the sense in the sense that what what he was what he was articulating obviously was that you know our true wealth is in is in our 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 ourselves, our culture, our spirituality, our our health, our family connections, our relationships with other people, and that. If the only if if the only measure of wealth that you're worried about is money, then you're very very poor, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, and you see it all day. I mean, there's there are plenty of people that have you know millions, or we'll, we won't name names, but there are billionaires that that are on this planet that mm-hmm. are very unhappy people, and you see yeah. that the way they act yeah. and what they do, um, and and it's unfortunate. And I think you know, obviously, for most of us, I think as we mature in life, we realize the importance of the other side of wealth where, you know, it's all the things that you just mentioned and money, even though, look, it's, it's nice to have, and I'm always happy for everybody to have more of it. 
um, myself included. I'm not going to exclude myself. Um, but the, really the only thing that does is it, it provides you flexibility and, and everything else, you know, you, you have to really come to terms with in your mind and how you are as a human being. Um, James, last question. Is there a book that we should all be reading right now? Sure. On that note, speaking about money, uh, there's a book I read a, a few years ago now called Debt that is super interesting. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's heard called of the book. Debt? Just Debt? Debt. It's called okay. Debt, okay. and the subtitle is uh, The First 5,000 Years. Yeah, Debt, The First okay. 5,000 Years. So it's basically a history of of debt and in our and monetary systems right and it's so it it's so interesting because it just flips on on its head the the the, the myths that we have about around money and around wealth and around you know what the purpose and function of uh you know our, our economic systems uh and and really kind of at its core it, it it talks about you know kind of debt not money being at the core and at the like the the root of uh yeah of our economic systems and 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 when you when you think about it from that perspective in that you know what what really is tying all this together is what what we owe to someone else or what we owe to a government or what we owe you know to to our society is what is 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 the 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 root and the seed it it you just have a different outlook than when you think about it from again like the, the money perspective so it, it's deep it, it i'm doing no, a, I'm listen doing a bad this, job I, explaining it no 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 it's great well, <laughs> it, well actually the thing the thing that i love about that is that it's not necessarily what i would have expected you to say right and <laughs> and actually I've, I've loved that about this entire conversation james because and, and thank you for that thank you so much you know it's a, it's a pleasure talking to you um i feel just from this short conversation smarter more educated and, and certainly more inspired to go achieve greater good in the world after this experience i'll try and remind myself not to get too far in the future so i can enjoy <laughs> it while it's happening but uh but thank you so much and and i really look forward to, to seeing you in person soon absolutely and thank you so much for having me absolutely james talk soon all right take care bye I'm Steve Parker Jr. I want to thank you for listening to Parker on Tap. I feel so much smarter and more reflective after talking with James Bartlett. He really makes me want to go out and accomplish something with a deeper meaning in life. My most important takeaway was his perspective on how art and history are a connection to life. In other words, how it connects us to a much larger purpose and place. Absolutely wonderful thoughts from James. I hope you appreciated this podcast because I sincerely appreciate you listening please share with a friend or on social. And we'd love it if you could take a moment to rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. Visit parkerontap.com. Hey, howdy do y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast